festival greetings to all our friends and brethren around the world. We hope you're rejoicing in God's Feast of Tabernacles. And as the Apostle Paul said in his greetings, Grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're celebrating God's plan of salvation for all humanity. The Feast of Tabernacles reveals an awesome part of that plan. Turn to Exodus, the 23rd chapter. Exodus 23rd. Exodus 23 and verse 14. Here we have the three pilgrimage festivals. The men in Israel were expected to come to all of these three festivals. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year, God says. Exodus 23, verse 14. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Then verse 16, the feast of harvest, which is Pentecost. The feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord eternal. So God's festivals give a revelation of God's plan. The first fruits and the Pentecost were the early spring harvest, and then the great fall harvest, when the multitudes of fruit from the field would be gathered in, the Feast of Ingathering. Also called, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles, which shows that we are pilgrims and strangers traveling on this earth. So this is the great fall harvest. In ancient Israel, they observed these feasts, but they had limited understanding. They didn't understand the great meaning in God's spiritual plan of salvation. These were the pilgrimage festivals. Let's turn to Romans, the 11th chapter. Romans 11. Israel was pioneering a way of life. They had the first covenant, the old covenant. They did not understand the spiritual application of God's law. They didn't apply it, and they didn't keep the old covenant. As Hebrews says, the fault was not with the covenant, the fault was with them, tells us in Romans, the 8th chapter. Here in Romans, the 11th chapter, the Apostle Paul says that the ancient Israelites and Israel of his day were blinded. Romans 11 and verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this day. But yet the same chapter, Romans 11, the Apostle Paul goes on to say in verse 25, he had a love for his people. He said, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, God had allowed them to be blinded, that they were not called to salvation at that day. Well, when will they be called? Notice the next verse, Romans 11, verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. When are they going to be saved? The great fall festival, the Feast of Ingathering, shows that is when Israel is going to be saved in the millennium. As it says in verse 26, continuing, As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, meaning Christ, 
and he will turn away all ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So yes, all Israel will be saved. When? In the millennium. And of course, in the white throne judgment, as pictured by Ezekiel 37. God's plan of salvation is awesome. It's just wonderful. And God gives us the privilege of understanding that awesome and that great plan. The Feast of Tabernacles pictures God's kingdom on earth. It is the world tomorrow. It is tomorrow's world. Our magazine and telecast is called Tomorrow's World. And interestingly enough, back in the 70s, the Worldwide Church of God had a magazine titled Tomorrow's World. In fact, I gave lectures in Jacksonville, Florida in 1973. We shared the lectures for two weeks, five nights a week in Jacksonville, Florida, and they were called Tomorrow's World Lectures. Well, we're looking for the world, real tomorrow's world. Let's look at uh, Hebrews, the first chapter. Hebrews, the first chapter. And this is, of course, very encouraging when we see God's plan is applied to us. Verse 13 of Hebrews 1. But which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? God didn't say that to angels. He said it to his Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? If you've not marked Hebrews 1, verse 14, it's a very inspiring verse. That God's angels minister to you, minister to me. Notice also that we will inherit salvation. We're going to inherit the earth. We're going to inherit the kingdom of God. We're going to inherit eternal life. We're going to inherit all things. Ta-panta, the universe. Let's go on then to chapter 2. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You're here at the Feast of Tabernacles, or you're observing the Feast of Tabernacles someplace out, maybe at home because you're homebound, or maybe you're in a far-flung place on planet Earth, and you understand God has called you to salvation. And we cannot neglect that salvation. You're not neglecting it if you're observing, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles. We need to be close to God as the end times continue to accelerate and as God's plan is fulfilled. He goes on to say here in verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. That is, God's Word has been confirmed to us. That is in verse 3. Now listen to this, verse 5. But He has not put the world to come, tomorrow's world, the world ahead, God's coming kingdom. He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. If He hasn't put the world to come in subjection to angels, then to whom has He put it in subjection? Verse 6, But one testifies in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. As we've explained before, 
All things is the Greek ta panta, meaning the universe. All things seen and unseen. God is giving that uh, to us as an inheritance. Verse 8, You have put all things in subjection under His feet, for in that He put all in subjection under Him, He left nothing that is not put under Him. That is an incredible vision of tomorrow's world. An incredible vision of the inheritance God is giving us. An incredible vision of part the Feast of Tabernacles pictures. But now we see not yet all things put under Him. We have to inherit all things as glorified, immortal children of God when we're born into the kingdom of God at the resurrection. So we see here that God has not put the world to come, tomorrow's world, under the subjection of angels, but He's given it unto us. God has called us to be pioneers for tomorrow's world. Those we are strangers and pilgrims on the earth, and yet we are pioneers of the new covenant. In this sermon today, I want to cover five particular points in helping us to look forward to the world to come. Number one is we are new world pioneers. Number two, we visualize the kingdom. Number three, help those in the second exodus refugees. Help the second exodus refugees. Rejoice in God's royal government and prepare for the new world. We'll cover those points as we have time. There's a uh, song that used to be sung long ago. I won't attempt to sing it, but I've encouraged our church members, if they can find the music and if they have a small choir or a group, to uh, get the music and to sing it. Here are the lyrics to that song. A New World Coming is the title of the song. There's a new world coming, and it's just around the bend. There's a new world coming, this one's coming to an end. There's a new voice calling. You can hear it if you try, and it's growing stronger with each day that passes by. It's just so exciting to hear, there's a new world coming, and it's right around the bend. I've been singing that today, and uh, just uh, encouraging. We need to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as it tells us in Ephesians 5, verse 18. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart unto the Lord, giving thanks unto God for, for all things. The lyrics continue. There's a brand new morning rising clear and sweet and free. There's a new day dawning that belongs to you and me. There's a new world coming, the one we've had visions of, coming in peace, coming in joy, coming in love. The title of the sermon is, There's a New World Coming, the title of that song. We have a part in preparing for that kingdom and helping others into that kingdom. Let's turn to 2 Peter, the first chapter, 2 Peter 1. Here we have the sure prophecy that God gives us in His Word. Verse 19 of 2 Peter 1. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So the brightness, the light of God's Word, the light of God's truth needs to shine out from us, needs to radiate from us. 
So point number one in this sermon on there's a new world coming is that we are new world pioneers. Notice in 1 Peter, when we realize that we have to shed light, to radiate light, that God has called us to be a part of His royal family, a part of His royal government. 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. You also as living stones are built up, are being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Remember, God has called us for tomorrow's world to be kings and priests and judges. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That means now. Now we offer up spiritual sacrifices and we will be a holy priesthood. Verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Why a royal priesthood? Because we are kings and priests. Jesus Christ holds the combined office of King of Kings and our great High Priest. A holy nation, verse 9, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Verse 11 of 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Yes, we are strangers on this earth. The Feast of Tabernacles pictures that particular role that we have. But we are a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And we are pioneers of tomorrow's world. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So God has called us to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, but also a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, as it tells us here in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. Let's turn to Hebrews 8. Hebrews, the 8th chapter. Remember the great new covenant that God is going to make with the nation of Israel and Judah. He mentions that in Jeremiah 31. But Jesus Christ instituted a new covenant for us. We're a spiritual Israel. We are the Israel of God. He which is a Jew is one spiritually, and circumcision is of the heart, not of the flesh, as it says in Romans, the second chapter. Here in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, we see the covenant that God is making with us now, really, when the Apostle Paul, who we believe is the author of the book of Hebrews, is writing this, he was telling them about the new covenant. The new covenant was going to apply to us, to the New Testament church. And this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. Hebrews 10, verse 16 says the Eternal, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. That's supposed to be going on right now. You pray and ask God to write His laws, write His way of life, to internalize the truth, the statutes, the judgments, the spiritual application of God's law. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. 
We are pioneers of the greater new covenant that's going to apply to physical house, the physical house of Israel and the physical house of Judah. But God has called us to be the spiritual Israel. And now we are pioneers of the new covenant. We are pioneers of tomorrow's world. And when we are in pain, when we are sick and ill, when we have to resist temptation, we will be able to identify with those whom we teach and serve and help in the kingdom, physical human beings whom we will be serving and teaching and helping, because we will have experienced their pain, their suffering, and we will be able to have compassion, be able to comfort them, able to teach them, able to lead them in the way of righteousness. So point number one is that we are New World pioneers. We're learning a way of life. We're learning the way of love and of kindness and giving. And we bear the fruits of God's Holy Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, and meekness, and temperance and self-control. And certainly during this Feast of Tabernacles, we need to radiate those fruits to be the light of the world to those who are around us, that they can see God's way of life and God's love and His Spirit radiating from you. So point number one in being the pioneers of tomorrow's world is just that. We are new pioneers. Point number two is to visualize the kingdom. Who is going to be leading in the kingdom? Who are going to be the great kings and priests in tomorrow's world under Jesus Christ? Let's turn to Matthew, the 17th chapter. Matthew, the 17th chapter. We get a view of God's future government. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Remember, Jesus took James, Peter, and John up into the mountain, and He told them that they would see the uh, Son of God coming in His kingdom. That's Matthew 16 and verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will, shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. How did they see that? It was in vision, as we see through the rest of the chapter. Matthew 17 and verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And who else did they see? Verse 3. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The Feast of Tabernacles pictures that time of the great fall harvest, the time of the millennium, the time of the world to come, the world ahead, tomorrow's world, when the kingdom's on the earth. And who are the prime individuals, the leaders pictured in this vision? Christ, Moses, and Elijah. So we know that those two assisting Christ, Moses and Elijah, are going to have a great responsibility in God's kingdom. Now, who else is going to be in that kingdom? Well, let's take a look at uh, others of the... Uh, Let's take a look at some other scriptures that show us who are going to be in, in God's kingdom. Of course, we ourselves will have a responsibility. 
We will be teachers, it says in Isaiah 30, verses 19 and 21. And they will hear a voice behind them saying, This is the way, walk you in it. Perhaps one of the other sermons that you've heard already has covered that particular scripture. Because of our calling as being a part of that government as kings and priests and judges, we will be teachers. That's one of the responsibilities of a priest is to teach. And as pioneers, we need to be teaching God's way of life now, particularly to our children. And you know that scripture in Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, it says, parents, you are to teach your children when you stand up, when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down. You teach God's way of life to your children. Now, priests, of course, also have a responsibility. Let's turn to Hebrews, the fourth chapter, Hebrews 4. So, we know that Moses and Elijah are going to be leaders, that we are going to be kings and priests, and we have to, we're in training for that particular great responsibility in the kingdom. But we also, as priests, must intercede for others. And our great high priest, Jesus Christ, intercedes for us. Hebrews, the seventh chapter, one of my favorite verses here, of many hundreds of favorite verses. Hebrews 7 and verse 25. Therefore He, our great high priest, Christ, is also able to save them to the uttermost, those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So part of our role is to intercede for others, to pray for others. That's what a priest does. That's what Christ is doing for us now. And are we interceding for others? Well, let's look at 1 Timothy, the second chapter, as a part of our role and what we'll be doing even in tomorrow's world. 1 Timothy, the second chapter. We are to be practicing intercessory prayer even now. 1 Timothy, the second chapter, and starting with verse 1. Therefore, I exert... Second uh, Timothy 2, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So are you praying for the leader of your nation, your country? Are you play, praying for the governor of your province or your state? He goes on to say in verse 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Won't it be wonderful in the white throne judgment, or perhaps even in the kingdom in tomorrow's world during the millennium, that God will reveal to physical subjects in the kingdom that He intervened for them because you prayed for them in a certain circumstance or a certain situation. And He did it because of your prayer. We need to intercede and pray for others. Remember verse 1, 1 Timothy 2, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So we will be a part of that government of tomorrow's world. We'll be interceding for others. And remember, of course, that Jesus told the disciples that they would be ruling over one of the ten tribes. Each one would be ruling over one of the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus told the disciples 
they would be ruling on thrones, each one over one of the twelve tribes of Israel. And, of course, King David would be over all of those twelve tribes in tomorrow's world. And you read about that in Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. So, point number two is to visualize the kingdom. Point number three is to help those in the second exodus. You see, when the kingdom comes, there's going to be a transition period. Let's turn back to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel, the 34th chapter. It isn't as if, well, all of a sudden, there's prosperity and there's uh, peace. Remember what we may have read, that God told Jesus that He would be on the throne until He put all enemies under His feet. Ezekiel, the 36th chapter or the 34th chapter in this case, remember that all of these Israelites through the Great Tribulation, and God indicates that there will be only a tithe remaining. There will be the prophecy of thirds, you know about Ezekiel 5.12, that a third will die by the sword, a third will go into captivity, a third and will die, and a third will um, die with pestilence and other causes. And so, um, you have a third that's in captivity, and of the total, God says there's going to be ten out of a hundred that will remain. They'll be coming out of the great tribulation. And it says here in Ezekiel, the 34th chapter, uh, starting with verse 11, For thus says the eternal God, the Lord eternal, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. So he's going to bring them into the kingdom, bring them into the Holy Land. Verse 15, I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord Eternal. I will seek what was lost and bring back that which is driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. And we see later on, of course, that David is going to be king here in verse 23. And I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Eternal, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Eternal, have spoken it. Then over a couple pages in Ezekiel 36, we again see the second exodus. You will be serving millions of Israelites coming out of captivity. They are going to loathe themselves. Ezekiel 36, starting with verse 23. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Eternal. You'll find that theme throughout the Bible. Remember, God told the Egyptians that they shall know that I am the Eternal. The world doesn't know God. But when He intervenes in world affairs, when Jesus Christ comes back, they are going to know that He is King over all the earth. As it says in Zechariah 14 and verse 9. Here in Ezekiel 36, 23, He says, "...the nation shall know that I am the Eternal," says the Lord Eternal, "...when I have hallowed in you before their eyes." For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit within you. The miracle of conversion, which we are pioneering even now. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Yes, they will be keeping the new covenant. God will write His laws on their hearts and minds. And right now, we are pioneers of that new world covenant, that new world to come, and the new covenant. He says in verse 31, You will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Yes, they will be teachable coming out of the great tribulation. They will want to be taught God's way of life. So we will be around to help those coming out of the great tribulation. We will help those who are in the second exodus. Let's take a look at one more scripture. It's a big topic. There's much in the scriptures about the second exodus, but let's just take a quick look at Isaiah the 11th chapter, which of course is a millennial chapter, talking about the change in animal nature. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Isaiah 11 and verse 6. We just love those scriptures, and we look forward to that day. Here in Isaiah 11 and uh, verse 11, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time. This is the second exodus to recover the remnant of His people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. They will finally be reconciled because they'll all be humbled, and they'll all be in the same condition of needing salvation, of needing healing, of needing a new heart, which God will give them, a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. So let's be ready to help those who are coming out of that great tribulation. And remember one of the lessons that we learn in the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 25 and verse 9, Then you shall call the, cause the trumpet. Leviticus 25, verse 9. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. Verse 10, a wonderful announcement on the day of atonement when people will be coming out of captivity. You shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. So we look forward to those refugees who will be coming out of the Great Tribulation as the millennium begins. And we need to help those in the second exodus. So let's understand, point number three is help the second exodus refugees. Point number four is that we need to rejoice in the royal government. We already saw that Moses and Elijah are part of that government. The twelve apostles will be ruling over twelve tribes. King David will be 
ruling over the combined houses of Israel and Judah, and they will be one house, not two sticks, as Ezekiel brings out, but made into one unit, one unified nation. So we look forward to that time when the royal government will be in place. And we've already seen that we will be part of that government. But let's take a closer look as we visualize the kingdom and as we rejoice in the royal government. Who would you like to meet in tomorrow's world? We know from Hebrews, the 11th chapter, who are the men and women of faith who are going to be in the kingdom? Would you like to talk to Noah? Would you like to talk to Joseph? or King David, or to Daniel, or to Peter, or to Paul. You know, we look forward to that royal government. And as we've seen in Revelation 5 and verse 10, that we will be kings and priests and we shall rule on the earth. Let's take a look at one other individual who will be prominent in God's government. Romans, the fourth chapter. Romans 4. And uh, he's, we're all considered children by faith of Abraham. If you are Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, it tells us in Galatians 3. Here in Romans, the fourth chapter, we read more about this individual because, again, it is Abraham. In verse 13, Romans 4, verse 13, "...for the promise that he would be the heir of the world..." was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham is called the heir of the world. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be prominent leaders, servants, kings, priests, and judges in tomorrow's world. Again, I already referred to this, but let's take a look at the Scripture. Matthew, the 19th chapter. I got ahead of myself, I think, in visualizing the kingdom. But we can all visualize the kingdom in many aspects of it, from the agriculture to the government to the educational aspects of tomorrow's world to the environment. It's going to be a wonderful tomorrow's world. Here in Matthew 19 and verse 27, Peter said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Verse 28 of Matthew 19. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Thank God for that government. Luke, the 19th chapter. And again, you're familiar with these Scriptures, but it's good to review during the Feast of Tabernacles, to see the wonderful family, the royal government, the royal family, the kings and priests that will be ruling over physical human beings because this will be the immortalized, glorified kingdom of God, the government of God. Luke, the 19th chapter, and uh, here we see about the uh, ruling over five cities. Let's just take a look at uh, the parable of the Minas. Verse 16, the first came saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And verse 17 of Luke 19, and he said to them, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. Have authority over ten cities. You were faithful in very little. 
I think sometimes we feel overwhelmed and overburdened. And we have to cast our burdens upon the Lord, as it says in 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. You were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said, you also be over five cities. And then there was, of course, the individual who said he didn't do anything with his mina. He just put it in a handkerchief. And he was not being the kingdom. So we all need to grow. We all need to produce fruit. But what a wonderful kingdom it's going to be. We take a look at the millennial temple that's described in Ezekiel 40 through 48. We won't turn there, but again, there will be the what is sometimes called the third or fourth temple because we realize, even as the Jews today believe that the Messiah will build that temple described in Ezekiel 40 through 48. Let's turn to Ezekiel 48, and I think some of you may recall my emphasizing this before. When we were in Israel for the Feast of Tabernacles in 1998, we had a wonderful group of God's people, and uh, we would be touring around, and the bus driver was speaking in Hebrew, and our guide on the bus would speak to the driver, and every once in a while you would hear this word, sham, sham, that meant there, there. Well, what will be the name of Jerusalem in the future? Here's this glorious temple. And uh, verse 35, the very last verse of Ezekiel 48, tells you another name of the city of Jerusalem. And it's describing the city. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that day shall be Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. The Eternal is there. Yes, Christ will rule from Jerusalem. That will be the capital of the world, the governmental headquarters of planet Earth, with the King of Kings glorified with His assistance with those who are in the first resurrection, ruling over the world from Israel. And then, of course, I won't turn there, but Isaiah 8, it says, The Lord dwells in Zion. Read Isaiah 8, verses 1 through 8. So point number four is rejoice in the royal government. You're going to be a part of it. Point number five is to prepare for the new world. You've heard many sermons on this, but let's turn to Revelation, the third chapter. Revelation 3, seven times in these two chapters, Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, we know he says, He that overcomes shall be given a certain reward or a certain position in God's kingdom. And, of course, to the Philadelphia church, he says, verse 11, Revelation 3, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast that you have, that no one may take your crown. Just imagine yourself in the future with a crown on your head, symbolizing your royalty, symbolizing your part in God's kingdom, His family, and your service as a king and as a priest. Hold fast that which you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, verse 12, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, 
and he shall go out no more. I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. We are in training, as Dr. Meredith has often stated, we are in training as kings and priests. And we have all kinds of opportunities. We have the Bible study course. We have the living leadership course. So, brethren, we need to really take advantage of what God has given. To whom much is given, much is required. And, of course, let's turn to John, the fourth chapter, as a part of our training, as a part of our growth spiritually, that we can be like God, that we can be more like Jesus Christ. John, the fourth chapter, Jesus had His heart in following the directives of His Father. John, the fourth chapter. So, even while He was being crucified, He said, No, I have finished the work. Here, John 4, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That is a part of our preparation for the kingdom of God. The very reason you got up this morning was to have a relationship, an intimate relationship, with our Father in heaven and with our Savior Jesus Christ. He says there in Hebrews 2, we didn't read that verse, but in that context, he says he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Christ is our loving, living Savior. And our relationship And the very purpose of our being is to be a part of that family and to have an intimate relationship with God the Father and with Christ. And part of our mission is right here in our motivations, verse 32, Jesus said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. John 4, verse 33, Therefore the disciples said one to another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food... My sustenance is to do the will of Him that sent me. Do we surrender to God's will? Do we pray fervently and meaningfully and heartfeltly? Your will be done. No, not mine, but your will be done. My food is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. God's people that are on fire, those who are enthusiastic, They have their heart in God's work. They want the mission to be fulfilled of preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world. And, of course, we are putting our hearts in God's work. That is part of our preparation. We want open doors. We pray for open doors for the kingdom, for the gospel to go out in even greater power. So during this Feast of Tabernacles, God has revealed to us the very meaning and purpose of life. We're here as New World pioneers. We want to visualize the kingdom during this Feast of Tabernacles. We want to look forward to helping the refugees coming out of the second exodus, coming out of the Great Tribulation. And God will give them a new heart, a teachable heart. And we will be there to comfort and to teach them. And we want to rejoice in God's royal government realizing that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are going to be there. The twelve apostles, King David and Moses and Elijah and all of those who are the faithful saints who will be kings and priests and judges in tomorrow's world. 
but it means that we have a responsibility to prepare for that kingdom. We are called to be a royal family in the kingdom of God. In Matthew 5 and verse 5 it says, The meek shall inherit the earth. Our job in the future is to help billions by teaching them to serve and to teach them how to enjoy life. As Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. John 10 and verse 10. We will teach them how to love God, how to love their neighbors. We are pioneers even now. We look forward to that new world that is coming. We will comfort those who mourn. We will discipline those who need teaching and discipline. We will teach the world God's way of religion, of business, of education, of art, of literature, of entertainment, of music, and the true values of family life. So, brethren, let's rejoice in God's family. Let's rejoice that we will be able to see Abraham and Isaac and Moses and Elijah and David and Joseph and Sarah and the faithful saints. So let's celebrate our calling. Let's rejoice because a new world is coming and it's right around the bend.